I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And you've got some notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to take those out as, as well. You know, the three men in the New Testament uh, who were healed from blindness, and uh, <clears throat> I can imagine them getting together and wanting to celebrate their unity and talk about how God healed them. So um, imagine this reunion between these three men. Uh, Bartimaeus begins and he says to the others, gentlemen, I can hardly wait to tell you what Jesus has done for me. Uh, I was outside the city of Jericho when Jesus walked by and I cried out, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, and everybody got quiet. And he asked me the most unusual question. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And I said, Rabbi, I want to see. And he said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. It was amazing. I was healed in an instant, and I've come to the conclusion that Jesus uses our faith and his word to heal us. Well, these guys had gotten together to show their unity in the body of Christ with each other, but the other two guys didn't seem enthusiastic about what this first one had said. And so, uh, about what Bartimaeus said. So the man from Bethesda told his story next. My story isn't like that at all. Jesus took me out of the city and spit in my eyes, and then he touched them with his hands. And it kind of worked, but not really because I saw people like, trees walking. And then Jesus did it a second time and it worked and I could see. And I'm convinced that when Jesus heals, he always uses spit and it always is done in two stages. Well, the other man didn't like this at all. The third man spoke up and said, I don't believe either of you. For me, Jesus used spit, but he spit on the ground and made mud and put it in my eyes. It was actually pretty uncomfortable But then he told me to go to wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. And when I did, I could see. And I'm convinced that when Jesus heals the blind, he uses men and holy water from the pool of Siloam. Well, the outcome of this uh, get-together to show their unity ended up doing the opposite. Because they forgot their common bond in Christ. And they went away deciding they needed to focus on their own doctrine. And out of the meeting that day came three denominations, the Spitites, the Mudites, and the Bartamites. The Spitites were all about the sacrament of spitting and doing everything in stages. And the Mudites made their sacrament out of mud and holy water from Siloam. And the Bartamites were all focused on their charismatic leader, Bartimaeus. They felt like they didn't need sacraments, they just needed Christ's word and faith. Okay, that's all a bit absurd. <clears throat> I admit, <clears throat> but it does highlight how quickly we can lose the unity that Jesus prayed for. You know, a lot of people know this about John Newton, uh, who wrote the Amazing Grace, this hymn that we love to sing. But uh, th- th- many people know that he was involved in the slave trade before that. But many people don't know that somebody had given him a book to read that prepared his heart 
to receive Christ. And that book was The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Um, out of curiosity, how many of you have read that book? Any of you? A, a couple? Um, you know what? I would highly encourage you to read that. It's a classic devotional book, The Imitation of Christ. Um, and it, it's, it emphasizes the importance of pursuing a deep and personal relationship with Jesus. Um, the book guides readers on how to detach themselves from worldly desires and <clears throat> to focus on spiritual growth through prayer and self-discipline, time in the word, imitating the life of Christ. And it encourages that, encourages self-denial, encourages a closeness with God. And this is what we read in the verses that we're looking at today. And uh, I kept thinking of, of the imitation of Christ in that devotional booklet as, uh, book as I was reading through this passage. So let's read our verses together. Um, Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promise made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. And in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is God's word. Well, Jesus was in absolute control over his actions, the way he lived his life, the way he spent his time. And we know from the, from the Gospels, in fact, in the Gospel of John, uh, from, verse, from chapter 13 on, represents basically one week in the life of Jesus. So how did he spend that week? Well, we know that he spent some time instructing his disciples, we know also from John 17 that he spent a lot of time in prayer with his father. And in John 17, the main theme of his prayer was the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ. Three times in John 17, Jesus prays for this. 
In, verse, in John 17, verse 11, he says, Now I am departing from this world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them with the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. And then in verses 20 and 21, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you. That's me. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. And then in verse 22, again, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus could have prayed for so many different and important things. Why was the unity of the body of Christ so important to Jesus? Well, the answer is in verse 23, the next verse in John 17. I in them and you in me, may they experience such perfect unity so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Well, the New Testament church failed pretty miserably at this unity. The church in Galatia, uh, some of those in the church were legalistic and that divided the church. That's why Paul, one of the reasons Paul wrote a letter, the letter to the Galatians. The church in Corinth was divided uh, on, on how to deal with sexual sin in the church. The church in Pergamum had a division because there were Christians marrying non-Christians and it was causing division in the church. Jesus himself said that the church at Laodicea made him want to vomit. That's not a very good testimony. Not a very good legacy, is it? The bottom line, and this is on your outline, is that the New Testament church fell way short of what Jesus taught and prayed for. Paul's exhortation to the church in Rome is back in Romans chapter 14. You can turn, your, turn a page or look across the page to Romans chapter 14. Verse 9 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And then Paul turns to the greatest and best example to Jesus. So what specifically do we learn about unity from Jesus? Well, the first thing is to not be self-absorbed. That's number one on your outline. To be self-absorbed means <clears throat> is, is selfishness. It's involving a, it involves a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, a need for admiration from others. And in contrast to that, Paul writes this in verse one again. We have, Romans 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So this call is directed toward those who Paul calls strong, the Gentiles. They were the ones who had more understanding when it came to exercising the freedom that we have in Christ. But it doesn't exempt the weak. The weak also have a responsibility to be accepting and patient with the strong. And among God's people, 
strength implies responsibility. It reminds me of a quote from uh, Uncle Ben to Peter Parker, uh, Spider-Man, when he said, uh, great, with great power comes great responsibility. Peter Parker learned that, and we need to learn that as the body of Christ. An unwillingness to forgo our rights for others indicates that we're not that strong after all. Because if we are strong, we would be willing to do that. So what does Paul mean when he says that the strong person isn't to please himself, but instead please his neighbor for his good? Well, there is a living to please, uh, to, to please others that God doesn't approve of. It's like what Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he says, for we speak as messengers from God, trusted by him to tell the truth. We change his message not one bit to suit the taste of, of those who hear it, for we serve God alone who examines our heart's deepest thoughts. This is not about being nice in order to put up with somebody's sinfulness. No, that needs to be confronted in a very loving but a very firm way. When we see people we love sin, we need to, to, to talk to them about that and confront them and pray with them and, and encourage them to forsake that sin and follow Jesus. So we're not talking about being nice to put up with someone's sinfulness. When Paul says in verse two that each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up, he's talking about, and this is on your outline, adjusting our lifestyle in order for it to contribute to the spiritual good of another. We said this last week, that doesn't mean that we have to do exactly what the most narrow-minded Christian wants us to do. That's not what it's talking about. However, there are times where for the sake of others, we, we might need to forego something that we're perfectly free to do in Christ. We know that. But we know that will hurt another brother or sister, and so we need to be aware of that. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says it like this, it is so easy for someone whose conscience is quite clear about some course of action to look at their critics and say, hey, I'm gonna please myself. They have every right to do so. But that, F.F. F. Bruce says, is not the way of Christ. And this isn't to be done while looking down at our noses or rolling our eyes at someone. It's to be done with a, a humility, a humble love, with, with patience. Someone said that showing patience with someone is one of the clearest ways to communicate Christ-likeness. Uh, I was reading a psychiatrist. I don't know if he's a believer or not, but this psychiatrist wrote, by listening patiently, you communicate that you see time as an ally of progress, not as an enemy that must be defeated by pushing for quick recovery. So there's, listening is important. Thomas Kempis described a patient person like this. The truly patient person asks nothing of the person with whom they are patient. Even when that person does wrong to them, they accept it as from the hand of God and even count it as gain. So this is not something that's 
optional in the Christian life. This is something that we are called on to do. So back to verse one. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. The word ought and the word owe are related in Greek. And so, in other words, we owe this to each other, to be patient with each other, to bear with the failings of the weak. Sometimes the Lord will convict us of something that we need to change in our lifestyle. If the Lord convicts you of something, by all means, change it. Don't wait for someone else to bring it up. If the Lord speaks to you about something, make the change in your life. So Paul is so concerned to enforce what he's saying, he does something that he has not done yet up to this point in Romans, and that is use Jesus as an example. Look at verse three. For even Christ did not please himself. So how was it that Jesus didn't please himself? We can't even imagine this, but you have this on your outline. Jesus left the indescribable glory of heaven and being in perfect harmony and communication with the Trinity, he left in order to come to lost humanity. He came to us. That's how we know that Jesus didn't just live for himself. Jesus says it over and again in the Gospel of John. In John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John 8, Jesus says, I always do what pleases my Father. And in John 6, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And what did Jesus get for this? Well, back to Romans 15, verse three, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. That's a quote from Psalm 69. and the prophecy that Jesus was rejected because he lived the God life. And we can't be surprised when we're rejected for living the God life, when we're rejected for being Christ-like. It will happen. Jesus, or the prophet Isaiah said it like this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one, free, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, we're reminded of this, that Jesus didn't live for himself every time we take communion. Every time we crush that little cracker under our teeth, we remember that Jesus was crushed for us. Every time we drink that cup, we're reminded that Jesus shed his blood so that we could have forgiveness of sin, so that we could have life in him. Jesus did not live live to please himself. And this truth has everything to do with us showing deference to other people within the body of Christ for the sake of unity. You know, the opposite, when I, one of the, another passage that was like screaming at me as I read this, these verses in John, or in Romans 15, was Philippians chapter two, which is the opposite of, of what uh, he's warning us about, of, of being all consumed with ourselves. And I, I wanna read this in Philippians, and, and again, the exact opposite of being self-absorbed. So from Philippians two, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another, working together with one mind 
and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And what's the rationale for Paul to say this in Philippians? Well, he says it in verse five of Philippians two. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's who Jesus is. That's what he did for you and for me. And of course, Jesus' example carries huge weight for us. Maybe it's because we just can't imagine Jesus living like this, but he really did live to not please himself. He really did, like it says in verse two, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's what he did by coming to earth to die for us. And we're called to follow Jesus' example. And Jesus' example, he is our example, but, but God will never ask us to do something that he will not give us the power to do, to carry out. And so if you might run across someone and you might think, how can I ever love this person? They're so hard to love. I'll tell you how you can do it. You can do it because the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. That's a fruit of the Spirit, the love of God shed abroad in your heart. So you can't do it, but the Holy Spirit in you can love that person who's hard to love. The Holy Spirit can give you all the fruit of the Spirit. And he gives us the power to, to carry that out. We can't live the Christian life on our own, but we can live it out with the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Paul just quoted a prophecy about Jesus in Psalm 69, almost as an aside. The next thing he mentions is how helpful God's word is to us. Look at verse four. For everything that was written in the past, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Do you have hope? Are you minus hope that you wish you had? Well, here's the remedy the remedy is get into God's Word. We can extend that to the New Testament because the, the, as you read God's Word, the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit will make that Word come alive to you. I remember when I first became a Christian, I, I had tried reading the Bible before, and I don't know if I ever got past like Genesis 3. I just kept getting lost. I thought it was boring. But when I became a Christian, every word I read in Scripture came alive to me. It was popping off of the page. And that's what God wants to do in each of your hearts. And if you're lacking hope, get back to the Word of God. One commentator wrote this, divine support is needed to enable us to follow Jesus courageously. And the believer will find that support only in the constant use of scriptures and in the help of God which accompanies it. 
So you need hope, you need joy, whatever you need, get into God's word. And then verses five and six, Paul prays for unity and then for worship. Verse five is his desire to pray for unity. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. The idea is not that we think alike on every issue, that's not the goal, but that we think about each other and ultimately about Jesus as we follow him and that we're able to have discussions on matters of opinion in a decent and orderly way. And, and we, we defer to one another, we listen to them, we listen to them well. We can spend our time nitpicking or in a spirit of love follow Jesus in unity. There are, for example, times, and this is on your outline, when we need to choose to forgive each other. That's the ultimate way that Jesus treated us. He forgave us. You know, the former head of World Vision, Bob Seipel, uh, tells about meeting a Lebanese Christian woman uh, named Mary. Uh, Mary was living in a small Christian village in Lebanon when that uh, country was falling apart in the 1980s. And a Muslim militia had come into their village and uh, Mary saw them and started running at one point and she tripped and fell. And when she got up, there was a young Muslim militia man, probably around the age of 20, holding a gun to her head and said, you need to deny Christ or I will kill you. And she said, I was born into a Christian family and I love Jesus and I will die a Christian. And he shot her. The next day, the Muslim militia came into that village to clean it up and get rid of the dead bodies and they ran across Mary and she was alive. And they made up a stretcher and took her to the hospital, which doesn't make a lot of sense after having tried to kill her the day before. But Bob, uh, the head of World Vision, recalls this conversation with Mary who was then in a wheelchair because her spine had been severed in that, in that, with that bullet and she was paralyzed. And after she told him the story, he said it makes absolutely no sense that they'd take you to the hospital after they'd tried to kill you. And Mary said, you know, sometimes bad people are taught to do good things. And Bob responded and said, how do you feel about the person who pulled that trigger? The 20-year-old who put you in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. She said, I've forgiven him. And Bob said, how in the world could you forgive him, Mary? And she said, well, I forgave him because God forgave me. It's really that simple. So who do you need to forgive today? You know, the world around us is crying out for forgiveness, for someone to forgive them. I remember uh, my friend and someone that many of you know, Jerry Root, having a conversation when he was receiving his PhD at Oxford with uh, an Oxford Don who was... Um, a, an agnostic at best 
And as she was speaking, uh, they were talking about the differences between Christianity and, and um, other religions. And in the end, uh, Jerry asked the question, uh, talked about, talking about the forgiveness of Christ. Do you know his forgiveness? And, and this Oxford Don said, well, that's one difference that I don't have an answer for. You have someone to forgive you. We have someone to forgive us. Who are we to withhold forgiveness from people around us who need it so badly? So Paul concludes his prayer by telling them his desire and praying for them to have a unified worship in verse six. Look at verse six. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood that worship will never be what it's supposed to be without unity. The reformer John Calvin said this, God really values it when his followers stick together. He's not going to have his greatness talked about when there is fighting and disagreements going on. Worship suffers when we're stubborn or when we refuse to let go of a past sin. Our own sin or the sin of someone else. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, defines bitterness, and he writes, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Doesn't work that way. Bitterness will destroy you. That's why we need, we need desperately to forgive. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 133, how wonderful and pleasant it is when God's children live together in harmony. You know, there was some time ago that I read an article called Worship Evangelism. It was really interesting, something that I hadn't thought of before, but it, it said that one of the things that God uses when non-Christians come into a worship service and watch Christians sing to the Lord, watch how they respond to the word, watch them, watch them worship, that that can draw other people to faith in Christ. And he told about some people that had come to faith through that in that way. But, but don't underestimate how God can use even our time of worship to draw others to himself. You know, it is a big deal when we let go of something that we love in order to free up somebody else and not be a stumbling block to them in order that we might build up the body of Christ. So, you know that it's possible and reasonable for us to differ with each other. Um, and because Jesus did it, we know that God will give us the strength to do that. I, I heard somebody use a symphony orchestra as an example of our unity as a body of Christ. Uh, imagine how boring Beethoven's Ninth would be if it was only played with just a hundred violins. I love the violin. Actually, in grade school and junior high, I played violin for about six years. I asked my mom when we were in France, and we'd been there for five or six years, I said, Mom, could you bring my violin over? And she would like, she said, I'd love to, but you're about a month too late. I sold it in a garage sale. I'm like, oh, well, okay. I still don't play the violin. Anyway, um, Beethoven called for a variety of instruments to be played. Uh, not only the strings, but the woodwinds and the brass and the percussion, even uh, human voice to perform his masterpiece. And he carefully crafted each part for each instrument. 
and they start and stop at different times, and they play notes in different patterns, but they play as one accord. And so the author of this wrote this at the end. He said, the church is an orchestra. We are instruments crafted by the artist. We play a score written for us by the composer, which allows our individual notes to create harmonies. Having tuned ourselves to the perfect pitch, living within the Holy Spirit in our lives, we play as one, interpreting the composer's masterpiece with precision and passion. And the result is stunning. We display the glory of God. That's what we're to do as a body. Not just as individuals, but as a body, a local body that, that represents the, the universal body of Christ. We're to display the glory of God. Whether we eat or whether we drink, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, we do it all for the glory of God. The second thing we learn about unity in the life of Jesus is to be accepting of all. So in this call to Christian unity, Paul moves from talking about the willingness to deny ourselves to please others, to the call to accept one another. Again, Jesus is the example. Uh, look at verse seven. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He accepted us all. But Paul talks specifically about his accepting the Jews in verse eight. Look at verse eight. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And the fact that Jesus became a servant to Israel uh, just reveals the length at which Jesus went to meet the needs of the Jews. But he also accepted the Gentiles. And Paul makes a big point of that. And to underline this, he quotes four Old Testament passages that point to the prophecy that the Gentiles would also respond in praise to God. So look at verse nine. And moreover, the gen that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. As it is written, here are the prophecies, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. And again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And verse 11, again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says in verse 12, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. That's you and me. That's us as non-Jews that, that promise, these promises are given to. So the Jews and the Gentiles couldn't have been more different from each other. But they were together in one church in Rome, which is why this is such a big issue and why Paul is writing to them. So how did Jesus accept you and me? That's a question we need to ask. He accepted us as we are with our many sins. You know, um, when I was, years ago, when I was teaching at a community college outside of Chicago, the College of DuPage, um, I had a student that I had developed a relationship with. We had him over for dinner one night. We were talking with him, sharing the gospel with him. And he, you could see the light go on and he got it. And then his face, his countenance fell. And he said, I want to become a Christian, but I have so many things in my life that I have to clean up first. And I was like, brother, have I got good news for you. You don't have to clean these up first. You come to Jesus just as you are and you let him clean you up. And he was like, really? This is exciting. And he trusted Christ. Uh, but that's the joy that we have 
We can come to Jesus just as we are with our sin, with our blind spots, with our prejudices, with our psychological shortcomings, with our cultural insensitivities. We come with all those things and we bring them to God and we let him change us. We bring our stubbornness to him. Do you know that you're stubborn? You might think, you don't even know stubborn. Think of my spouse, they're stubborn. But you know what? You're stubborn. We're all stubborn. We all have an ego. It's all about us. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about glorifying God in our lives. That's what it's about. And then Paul concludes this section with a benediction. And it's what I've been using as a benediction since we started studying the book of Romans together. Romans 15, verse 13. I've said it out of the, the message, but I'm, here it is from the New International Version. It says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is what we've said before, not something that you wish or that you, you, you think might happen, but it really might not. And then you've got this on your outline. Christian hope is a certain expectation based on God's promises. And because God always keeps his promises, we have a, a guaranteed future. We can endure trials because we have joy. We have the peace of God. Remember those again are fruit of the Spirit. You don't have joy. It's in you because of the Holy Spirit is in you. So you can fall back on that, on the promises of God. Our trust in Jesus keeps moving us forward when on our own we feel like quitting. And the so that, when he says so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, indicates a cause and effect relationship. And that's significant because it's God who gives us and fills us with joy. He fills us with hope. Our only responsibility is to believe, to trust in, to rely on, to cling to God. So Paul's desire and prayer is that the pro- in the process of believing, as followers of Jesus, we would overflow with hope. And when that happens, it's bound to impact other people around us because the overflowing is, it will overflow to the people around us. Now, I think it's fascinating in Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ, it dovetails so beautifully um, with the themes of this book. And so to kind of provide a landing place for us as we bring this up to an end, I, or this sermon to an end, I just want to uh, bring out a couple things and ways we can practice it this week that are mentioned by Thomas Akempis in the saving life, in um, his book, The Imitation of Christ. So the first one is be compassionate with each other. Be compassionate with each other. Akempis emphasizes the, the practice of humility and patience and bearing with each other. Uh, he says it like this, learn to be patient in all things and to bear with the faults and weaknesses of others. For you also have many faults which others must endure. And I know what you're thinking, me? No. But he goes on to say, if you cannot make yourself what you wish to be, how can you bend, the, bend others to your will? We want them to be perfect, yet we do not correct our own faults. And one of the best ways to show compassion is, we already talked about this, just listening, listening patiently to people. Who is it in your life that you need to listen to? 
Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. But who do you need to listen to? And then the second thing that both this passage and Thomas Kempis emphasize is for us to imitate Jesus' attitude. Imitate Jesus' attitude. Back in verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So Akempis, again, talks about this, and I'll just end with this quote from Thomas Akempis. Uh, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, says the Lord. These are the words of Christ, and they teach us how far we must imitate his life and character if we seek true illumination and deliverance from all of our own blindness of heart. Let it be the most earnest study, therefore, to dwell upon the life of Jesus Christ. So how does that happen? Man, read the Gospels. Start there and allow that. Just ask the Lord to to give you the strength to live out what you read. So again, in his final hours, Jesus prayed for us to be one. And, um, you know, there's some good and even legitimate and rightful things that God is asking maybe you to forego for the sake of the unity of the body. And if he's doing that, by all means, let him go. So um, maybe are there people that you need to accept because they're not your type uh, that you have have had a hard time accepting because of that? Covenant before God to love these people with the love of the Holy Spirit that's been shed abroad in your heart. Um, Well, since that first story that I shared was made up, uh, we can end it the way we want. So I'm confident that those guys got together and crucified their own selfish desires, those three blind men. And they went on to wash each other's feet and to forgive each other and to celebrate their unity in Christ. That's exactly what we need to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your call for us to prioritize unity over our personal preferences. Thank you for accepting us with all of our imperfections and for the example of Jesus who sacrificed himself so that we could have a relationship with you. You've called us to the same humility Jesus had. Help us to pursue unity and put aside our desires for the greater purpose of your glory. Give us the strength to bear with one another's weaknesses and differences. And as we walk in the Spirit, Lord, will you lead us into a deeper understanding of the beauty of our life together in Jesus. And more than your example is the truth that you offer us, the forgiveness uh, of our sin because of the cross. May that be the starting point for all of us. And then may we freely offer that forgiveness to the people in our lives who don't deserve it. And Lord, if you've spoken to someone this morning, may they respond right now in faith. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. So, uh, from Romans 15, verse 13, from the message, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Uh, Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.